Hi, I'm Lindsay Boomershine, brand manager of High Five Gear. H5G has thousands of designs to choose from and no hidden artwork fees. How awesome is that? Have your jersey tell your story. Order online at www.high5gear.com today. Add H5G into your wardrobe and show off your individuality. Use code ABOVE180 at checkout for $20 off any H5G style. Order today and enjoy high5gear.com. Hey, bowlers, Bowling This Month is back. Bowling This Month is bowling's trusted technical resource that's relied upon by thousands of serious bowlers, pro shop operators, and professional coaches. From independent ball reviews to great instructional articles on all facets of our sport, you'll find it all at BowlingThisMonth.com. For less than the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can have online access to Bowling This Month's premium technical bowling content that will help you improve your game. Bowling This Month is so confident you'll be satisfied, they're offering a 14-day money-back guarantee to all subscribers. Check out BowlingThisMonth.com and sign up today. You can hear Above 180 on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and beyond, on demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Tim Berg is ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, here's your host, Tim Berg. Nick Hoagland directs the Lane Development Program at the United States Bowling Congress. Thought it'd be great to bring Nick into the conversation here. We're going to chat about the U.S. Open, the pattern, and kind of some of the questions that have been floating around regarding the pattern this past uh, U.S. Open. And I also want to get Nick's perspective, which is why we're bringing Steve Klemkin on as well, Steve and myself, to the Collegiate Spotlight podcast. So we're going to also chat with Nick about some of the Collegiate patterns and kind of preview some of the upcoming stuff for the Collegiate tournaments as well. So, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. Great to be back on, so thanks for having me. Nick, I want to begin at square one. Walk everyone through the process for coming up with the U.S. Open pattern from the beginning to the end. Well, it's a great question. It has been uh, a topic and, and glad to discuss. Um, so the process that we use for all USBC events, um, including the U.S. Open, is we test on site. Um, so we do very rarely do patterns where I'm sending a pattern in from the office, so to speak. So um, before we even get to the center, you know, we're, we're talking about the U.S. Open. So we're, we're trying to balance out, you know, lane surface type, lane surface age, lane surface topography. Uh, you know, there's a certain expectation, I think, in the public that the U.S. Open should be harder, right, from a scoring pace perspective. Um, we're trying to balance lefty-righty equity. Uh, we're trying to balance straight tweener, power player, two-hander um, segmentation, right? We're trying to balance squad equity, A, B, and C. Uh, and for this tournament, we're trying to get three angles to win uh, the championship, and that's, that's why you see the, the fresh, the burn, the double burn. Um, and so that process starts, you know, six months ago. I'm um, testing patterns. Sometimes I test them in a the college uh, atmosphere. Sometimes I just test them here at home. Um, balance those out. Then I go on site. I went on site to Flamingo Bowl on October 14th and 15th. Um, and because the sun is so busy, we tested in the middle of the night. I say we, it's me. Um, from 1 to 6 a.m., 
Uh, first of all, I go through and do an entire inspection of the center from a, not from a topography standpoint, because when I was there, the, the topography team was busy leveling the lanes, but making sure there's no um, huge dents or chips out of the panels, make sure the kickbacks and the flat gutters are all in shape. Uh, make sure the pin setting is, is um, in, good, in good order um, as best as we can. Um, and then we start testing the patterns. And so for this event, I had uh, five test patterns um, I wanted to test and tested those on the first night, uh, tested my ball reaction. I take my equipment, I bowl on the lanes. And Steve, as you know, as we get older now, we're not as good as we used to be, but um, I still think I can uh, read my ball reaction pretty well. And then uh, took those back, thought about it, went back the next night and put out three more and decided on two of them. One we used for the PTQ and then one we used for the uh, U.S. Open. So a pretty thorough process um, to get to the pattern decision. Yeah, it sounds very thorough. You talked a little bit about the different styles, too. And, uh, you know, the one thing you look at the people who were on the telecast, you did have the three left-handers. But the two righties, I mean, drastically different styles between Norm Duke and Wes Mallott, right? Yeah, I mean, if you took... Uh you know, to be completely honest, you took that final standing sheet, the top 24, and you looked at it. And, yeah, you know, we play this math game about left-handers. You know, we had six in the top 30 after qualifying, but we also had some great lefties, PBA champions, miss the cut, like Anthony Pepe and Jesper Svensson, Matt Sanders, Parker Bone, Gary Faulkner. Uh, so it wasn't like it was a cakewalk. I don't want the left-handers mm-hmm. to feel like, you know, oh, the left side was easy. No, it wasn't. Those guys pulled fabulous. But you take that sheet and you load down the list. And, again, if you didn't read any of the social media or see any of the extreme lofting, you'd go, man, that's, uh, I think we did pretty good. I think that's that balanced out pretty well, and we'd be happy with the result. And so, um, you know, I'd take a look at that, and, and from a result standpoint, we're in a results business. Uh, I think Rhino Page threw 24 perfect shots on TV last night and uh, definitely earn that title. Yeah, so you bring up the lofting. So when you're watching on extra frame and you see some people kind of creeping in a little bit deeper, even in their first block there, does that have you already thinking, oh, boy, this is going to get real interesting come the double burn? I think that, you know, I go back to what the U.S. Open is, and, you know, it's the toughest test in bowling. And the definition of what tough is, I think, has changed over time. You know, the USBC showed a – um, a clip of Walter Ray in 1993 at Roseland Lane, Roseland Bowl in Canandaigua lofting the ball on the lane on TV. This has been going on, you know, for my entire lifetime. It's just the extreme nature of it now, I think, is what gets the attention, and, and rightfully so. Um, but I, I, I didn't worry. Um, I knew that there was an angle on the gutter. Now, mind you, the angle on the gutter um, didn't bounce back quite as good as the last couple of years. And so uh, I think the, the amount of players that played right early clearly was less. And that, of course, translates into more balls going down the middle of the lane quicker. And you're going to um, get some scorched conditions on C-Squad. I will say I think the guys figured them out. And the next two days of qualifying after the initial, I think, uh, if you ask the pros, it was uh, the C-Squad guys on those nights definitely caught a break. They weren't as as toasty as that first that first day of qualifying. Now, when you look at how the how the shots play, you know one of the other words that's kind of come around the last few years that I, I think a lot of people did weren't even really familiar with. But you know, you being your involvement with oil patterns and and really from the foul line and beyond, uh, the word topography. You know, how how much do you think topography plays into you know designing a pattern for 
a you know a huge center like the U.S. Open? Do you see consistent trends across the whole center? Is it depend from lane to lane? And and what do you think a, a bowler uh, is that something they should be concerned about when they're uh, when they're when they're bowling? I think it's it's a great question, Steve. Topography clearly is, uh, if not the largest, a large influence on ball motion. Um, when you get to the elite level of the PBA Tour and the U.S. Open, um, it just is magnified. Um, so you add that as a variable that you have to contend with, right? But then you also add the fact that you know the pro anvilanes that were in Flamingo Bowl um, were around 20 years old. And there's a large track on the right side of wear compared to the left side. Um, so you got to take that into account. Um, and so from the pros perspective, they're really into it. Now, when you get, this is my opinion, when you get to the conversations about the open championship and looking at all the graphs and one of the graphs on one pair or two pairs is slightly different. The average bowler bowling that open championship, isn't going to see that. Uh, they're not going to feel that reaction difference. They're not going to notice it. In fact, most of that stuff is near the gutter on the five board. And I've bowled enough championships with, you know, um, average players that their ball's never going to be right at 10 anyways. They're going to be playing the track. And so I think for the average, the average customer, it's probably not as big of a deal. We make too much out of it. But for the pros and at their level, yes, absolutely, um, it, it, it would be a, a large impact for them. Or maybe maybe even like say the World Championships that's coming up uh, shortly here at the South Point in mm-hmm. uh, in Las Vegas at that kind of a level, in your bowling you know a six game uh, block for example across the center it might be helpful to to know and and kind of see what the differences are from pair to pair. Yeah, I'm 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 totally a fan of that absolute transparency about that 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 makes complete sense to me and I applaud USBC for spending the money on leveling these lanes prior. Uh, to competition. I think your point though, about the pair, Steve, is interesting because, um, you know, talking to Chad Murphy and what was published before the event, part of this concept of the open, of the limited field, besides prestige and, and getting into some, some great centers that we didn't have access to before just because of number of lanes, it's the cross, right? Steve, you've hit those mm-hmm. uh, pairs, right? You were pulled at North yeah. Black Lanes in Wichita. You know which pairs are good and better, right? And so mm-hmm. having 15 and 16, always high scoring. There you go. I mean, we all have our centers that we know what pairs are good. And to have all of the competitors bowl equally on the pairs at the U.S. Open was a win. So you got two games on each pair of lanes. There are 12 pairs of lanes used times two games is your 24 games of qualifying. Well, I'll say one of the effects that I, you know, I'm not sure I considered was limited field also means that the the concentration of the great players with the higher rev rates was going to be more concentrated, if you think about it, right? When we bowled in Dallas in 15, we had, I think we're using 42 or 44 lanes. And so you'd have Belmo and you have Wes, and you have these these great high rev players split spread out over three squads, and they're not hitting every pair. Well, in this tournament... Mm-hmm those guys hit every pair or most of the pairs of the same pairs in qualifying. And so I think that added to how they broke down quicker than the last couple of years. Um, I think that was part of the reason. I think there's a lot of little reasons of why um, the lanes got to where they did. It wasn't just one, one major factor. So has there, is there a way or from a, from the lane man's perspective, is there a way when you put out the oil pattern, 
to have it not happen like that? Could you say, well, if I had to put two more feet out? Because then people, it seems like they would just migrate in further, right? So is there is there a quote-unquote solution that would make people maybe not be as far in? Or is it just uh, the thing that we're going to have to deal with when we have the circumstances that, like you said, of how the tournament is laid out? Yeah, I, I, to be completely honest with you, and no spin, I think this pattern was one load off from being perfect. I think if the left side would have had um, one more two, and the right side would have had one less two, um, you would have seen you know the left ball reaction maybe on the fresh not be as great as it was you saw last night on TV, um, and the right side would have picked up and and you know swished them Dick Weber style instead of two eight tenning on the fresh, and, and that that is lane maintenance. You know I I, I think of it as playing blackjack, and every time I get dealt sixteen. And the dealer's got seven. And I go, what am I going to do? Am I going to, am I going to take a hit here on a card? What if he's got, you know, he's got a 13 chances or 12 chances of getting a face card. This is like the the same discussion of oiling lanes. Do I add a two to two? Do I add a five to five? And sometimes it can be one load off. I will tell you, if you put these three patterns up, the one from this year, last year and 15, you put them all on the same graph and, and don't look at the overhead because the left side has changed how we've done that over the past three years but the right side the load structure the volume the ratio is very similar in fact this year's pattern actually had less oil to the right on the outside than the previous two but it seemed to hang more and so to answer your question tim um you go in and do the best you can yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Should have taken an, a, a two off the right side, let it hook more. But what's that going to do to the scoring pace? We're going to have people averaging two forty at the U.S. Open. I don't know. Um, it's not an exact science. There is a bunch of art that goes into it. Sometimes you hit home runs, like we did in Dallas in fifteen. You know, sometimes we hit doubles, like last year. And sometimes, you know, you take a walk, you, you get hit by a pitch, and that's what happened this year. Yeah, so speaking of taking things into account, how much do you take into account that we're seeing the lefties throwing a lot of urethane down lane, or does that not, not play a part into anything that you guys do when you're setting up these patterns? No, it's, 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 completely, um, it's completely changed the process because, you know, before the urethane revolution, you want to call it that, you know, I'm thinking back to the mid-2000s, you put out Cheetah or Viper or something short, right? It forced guys to the gutter because the reactive balls, even the weaker reactive balls, still are, are going sideways off the pattern. Now with urethane, and we saw this at the Masters last year um, at the Orleans, I think that pattern was 40 feet, maybe 39, with some drop brush, and everyone used urethane. And so if you go with urethane, let's say we oiled you know, a, a, a short 36-foot pattern for the U.S. Open, you're like, okay, well, no one's going to have to be able to play deep on that early. Well, you're right. What's that do to the track on the right side? If you've got half the guys throwing urethane, half the guys throwing resin, what do you do with the left side then? What are they going to do? Are they going to throw all urethane? Are they going to throw resin? It just makes it more complicated. I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to say that uh, deciding these things, um, sometimes uh, it seems easy, but there are so many variables to take into account that uh, you miss one of them, and you can end up with uh, a result that you don't really, uh, really are looking for. Want to remind folks, if you're looking for a shirt, please check out high the number 5 gearcom Lots of great colors, lots of great styles, 
over a thousand different designs to choose from so you can find your own you can make your own like Kyle Troop said a few weeks back you can go and design your own shirt so you have something unique and special that speaks to you again check out high the number five gear.com also special opportunity above 180.com listeners use the promo code above 180 that'll get you twenty dollars off your order so use that code above 180 that'll get you twenty dollars off lots of great stuff please check them out high the number five gear.com so one of the you know most reputable and successful collegiate bowling tournaments in the nation is one that you're uh, highly involved with there, the Hoosier Classic. And I think there's a, a great history there. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about what your involvement has been and what uh, is involved with you preparing for that tournament coming up? I think it's in February, am I right? Yeah, it's February 16th through 18th at Western Bowl, uh, 80 Lane Center, Indianapolis. This is the 49th edition of the Hoosier Classic. We'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary wow. next year. Yeah, it's wow. the oldest uh, collegiate bowling tournament in the country. Uh, I bowled in it back in 1996, 97, um, and bowled it through 2000. And at that time, just to give you a brief history, um, Kegel was one of their first involvements with the collegiate bowling tournament was our Hoosier Classic in 1998. At that time, uh, Charlie Brehob was the proprietor at Sport Bowl and was president of the BPAA, and there was a push for college bowling, and we bowled the Hoosier Classic at his center. And I think we had maybe 40 teams. Uh, fast forward, um, when I came back after the PBA and started working in Indianapolis, I got reinvolved with the tournament. It had been kept alive throughout the years and had grown to 80 teams at Woodland Bowl, and I started my involvement back in around 2009. And since then, we've gone to two squads, um, we now have 78 men's teams, 66 women's teams, and I had 50 teams on a wait list this year to get in the tournament, all varsity, no JV. And it's, so it's clearly become the pinnacle besides winning the ITCs, obviously. Um, but it's, uh, we added a charity element last year. We raised over $7,000 for Make-A-Wish Foundation, and we actually sponsor, will sponsor a Make-A-Wish kid this year and grant a wish through charging um, parents who – uh, come to watch their healthy children bowl, uh, $5 a day. That's a nominal fee to, to get in, and we're able to really do some good. So the tournament's gone from just being a bowling tournament to being um, a real event that's really doing some good for you know for a great organization like Make-A-Wish. Yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of the you know people talk about the success of the PDGA Tour, and it seems like that's something they've always been able to do is tie in some of these extra uh, causes that get tied in with the tournament and it kind of helps build mm-hmm. um the the prestige and popularity and in, in you know 49 years that's that's awesome and 50 years uh coming next year is just going to be wow i mean that's 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 an amazing history right there yeah what's really fun for me is since i've you know got involved in it again it's the excitement of the collegiate players and to a certain degree most of the coaches who are mm-hmm. truly interested in what kind of oil we're going to ball on you know, if I if they're too easy, these kids are disappointed. And my God, is yeah. that is that awesome to hear? I mean, you know, we <laughs> get some criticism sometimes, but for the most part, you know, we, we passed out the graph now. I think I, you know, half an hour before, and there's a line waiting to see the graph um, of what we're going to bowl on. And a lot of times they don't know it, but you know, these are templates that we're going to use in other events. You know, one template we bowled last year, we ended up using on the PWBA tour this year, um, and so. You know, they, they're a great test ground for patterns uh, at, at the Hoosier Classic, and they love it, which is really, uh, really makes it fun for me. 
So, Nick, it sounds like there's a, a, a bunch of integrity that goes into these patterns, whether they're set up for the Hoosier Classic, whether they're set up for the PWBA, whether they're set up for the U.S. Open, for the USBC Open Championships. Just kind of talk about that and, and really how it, how it is, how, you know, what the procedure is for that and why that is so important to our sport. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Uh, that, it's a great question. You know, when I did lanes on the PBA Tour, I was still in 03, 04, 02. I was still working alongside touring professionals at Bold in the, you know, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s. And even then, their perception was, hey, man, they used to mess with the lanes. They changed the lanes. There's just this huge integrity gap between the lane guy and the athlete, whether it's a PBA or a Team USA event or whatever. And really, um, the integrity and the process that we have now with our partners, Kegel, is second to none. You know, we go in and do, as I mentioned earlier, sort of the field work on the bowling center, on the panels, on the lane leveling, on the, the racks. And then either a USBC-designated uh, lane person from the international campus or most of the time our partner at Kegel will come in and actually run the lanes, you know, operate the machines, do the volume checks, um, do the tapes, make sure that everything is a-okay. Because the last thing you want to do is have a tournament decided um, because something went wrong with the lane maintenance process. And to me, the definition of integrity, if you look at the, if you look at the dictionary, is the quality of being honest and having a strong moral principle. And so to me, although the, the U.S. Open pattern can be interpreted by some as not being successful, the integrity is in the process of how we got there. And by the way, you know, that same pattern was run every day. And I learned that personally from Len Nicholson, who was a mentor of mine, and it happened to him in 1993 mm-hmm. at the Showboat. They had a 56-game long format. They had Guardian with resin balls, sort of the first time they, one of the first times they encountered that. And I think the math was 17 to 24 lefties made the sh- made the cut, and all four on the show were left-handed. And um, you know they interviewed Len and said, "Look, you know we can't just change the lanes because we don't like the outcome. The pattern is the pattern." And we're not changing it. And I'm, I'm proud to say, you know, since I started doing lanes in 01 with the PBA through now, you know, we've never changed a pattern ever once qualifying has started. Um, on a few rare occasions after practice session on, in the PBA, we'd see something that we didn't like and we'd make a change and then inform the players. But never change the pattern because we went from wood to synthetic or from a bowling center to arena. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, you know, I think USBC gets knocked sometimes about not showing the pattern, and that's somehow a violation of integrity, and I disagree with that 100%. Uh, the process of proving the same pattern on the lane is what integrity is about. Um, changing patterns from a bowling center to an arena show, uh, that is not integrity to me. Well, that's a good point there. You bring up a lot of good stuff there, Nick. I, I applaud you for that. There's definitely a lot of... Uh, you know, people who sit back and assume and say something is, is fair or not fair, they lacks integrity or has integrity. Um, but there is definitely a distinction, and I'm glad you pointed that out. Hey, uh, well, the last question I have for you, um, and you talked about not showing the patterns, so you actually kind of led right into my final question here, mm-hmm. which is, you know, there's another big event coming in Syracuse. Coming in 2018, we've got the Open Championships, and, uh, you know, when you don't know what the pattern is, and you're traveling, uh, how do you, what kind of advice do you have for people that are going there to compete? And again, they don't know what the condition is. Uh, how do they 
try to decide, well, you know, what kind of bowling balls do I bring? What, what types of different shots do I work on? You know, mm-hmm. being prepared to play something on the outside or inside or somewhere in the track or what kind of advice do you have? You're a past champion. That's a great question. I, I think a totally fair one. Um, uh, I'd say that trying to replicate in, in the past, trying to replicate the USBC open championship pattern on brand new lanes in an arena setting to your home center even if you have the same lane machine and the same oil and the same surface, just isn't the same. Um, and so I think we, we went through a fool's errand for years in, in trying to say that we can replicate this at home. All we really did was confuse the customer where they drill balls, think they go to the, the pattern that's put out, and then we'd, we'd receive feedback. Well, this isn't the pattern. This ain't the pattern I practice on at home. And all it did was create chaos for the pro shop operator who drilled the ball for the proprietor we didn't have the latest machine. And so by not showing the pattern, but again, proving the integrity of the process, each squad, what we've done is have people come in with a fresh approach. So you come in, most folks travel in the day before you come into the convention center, get familiar, uh, take a look at the lanes, watch somebody bowl. Um, there's also practice sessions that are for an additional fee. You can go, uh, practice on the pattern at a different location. Um, you know, to be completely fair, I think the best thing to do is to go watch. You know, before I bowl, I would just go in and, and come in for a fresh team squad or just for the first half hour, just walk the lanes and say, oh, well, these guys are playing five or this guy throws the ball like me. He's playing eight. Um, I think that's the best way to do it. That way you don't have any preconceived notions of what the pattern should be. You're bowling on what the pattern is. Um, the other suggestion I'd say is, man, keep it simple. If you can't roll the balls out, don't take them four, three, five. That's the max. You start getting into eight balls and uh, I'm not sure when you have enough time to throw all eight, and nine games. Well, and along those same points, um, what I heard, you know, I did an interview with Dave Srigliano regarding the mm-hmm. USBC open championship and what he said, actually releasing the topography of the lanes almost provided more information. I think he said it did provide more information mm-hmm. than actually just providing the oil pattern with the load units, et cetera, because now you knew which way, the, you know, if there was any abnormalities in each lane from lane that you were playing on. Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I, Dave actually bowled. This, I, I bowled this year with my USBC colleagues. My scores didn't count. I didn't win any money, uh, but it was my 20th year. So I got to participate and continue the tradition of me bowling in the tournament, although I'm serving in this lane maintenance capacity now. But Cerigliano's teams bowled um, right alongside us, and uh, you know they're they're an impressive group to watch. I would caution folks on the the graphs. You know, you see the red, the blue, and, and my gosh, it looks like it's you know climbing up Mount Everest. If <laughs> if one of those data points is um, you know ten one thousandths high or low, um, yes, it will uh, affect the ball. It won't affect it five boards. And so some of the chatter I'd see about, I think it's flames 33 and four or 35 and six at, um, at the South point, that would always be the cause of concern because their topography wasn't exactly right. There were plenty of scores bowled in that pair. And I think the average bowler isn't going to see or notice the difference from pair to pair. Again, by the way, we're bowling on the same pair of lanes for all three games. We're not moving. Um, so I take that with a grain of salt. It's good to have it. Um, but Again, I wouldn't say just because your pair uh, was ten thousands versus five thousands that somehow you have an advantage or a disadvantage in the tournament. The one thing I like, and sorry to sorry to interrupt real quick there, but I did have just just real fast to add on to that, Nick. The uh, 
you know, the, the one thing that I've found when you look at those graphs and the charts, and I've worked with some of the, the international teams there the past far as coaching, is it does help a little bit if you know, like, hey, you know what, I made a good shot here, and it may confirm uh, some kind of a feeling. Or if you're not really sure how you threw it, you're, you know, you, you're, you're just not 100% on it, but the ball did something anyways, it may mm-hmm. help kind of confirm your suspicions. But it's just a little piece of the puzzle that's a little bit of an added, you know, added type of information to figure out and help you help you line up and get, you know, get comfortable Steve, on, I think, on your pair if you use it properly. I think you're totally right, especially in world competition. When you're going from pair to pair, that's like going from hole to hole in a golf course, right? You want to know, yeah, you know what, this pair looks like from a topography perspective is going to hook more. Maybe I'm going to make a two-in-one left before I even throw a shot. I think that is entirely fair, and I'm glad we do that. When you're staying on the same pair of lanes, though, for three games or for six games, um, again, I think that that information is important. I don't think it dictates all of the strategy needed to win the tournament. I want to remind folks before our time is up, please check out bowlingthismonth.com. Seeing lots of great articles there from Bill Semstrad and the whole crew. Joe Slowinski, friend of the program, had him on a couple months back. Did a great podcast of Joe's article, The Anatomy of a, an Elite Release. Still up there. You can check that out. Lots of great stuff. Ball reviews on your left-hand side. You guys know the drill. Check out the website, though, if you haven't been there in a while. Check out bowlingthismonth.com. Well, Nick Hoagland, thanks for hopping on with us. know you're a very busy guy, and uh, all the best of luck. And we'll have to catch up. Uh, maybe what we'll do, Steve, we'll catch up with the team that ends up coming out on top of maybe the men's and the women's side of things here at the, uh, at the Hoosier Classic coming up here February. That's a great idea. I'd love to. If Nick, if you can make time for us again uh, early in the year, that we'd love to have you back on. No, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for allowing me to um, to comment and you know dispel some uh, some anecdotal information. Um, I, I really appreciate it. <laughs>